Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Good afternoon. I'm Kayla Williams, Director of the Military, Veterans, and Society Program at the Center for a New American Security. CNAS is committed to bold, innovative, bipartisan research that drives national security forward. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us for today's virtual roundtable, the first in our planned multi-part discussion series on race in the military. The first discussion session focuses on the lived experiences of people of color in the U.S. military. Future sessions will cover topics including effective leadership in an increasingly diverse force and the importance of understanding intersectional experiences. If you're a service member or veteran, perhaps you were told, as I was in the Army, that everyone bleeds green and racism is not a problem in the U.S. military the way it is in civilian society. We may reflect proudly on the fact that Truman signed an executive order desegregating the military in 1948, years before the civil rights movement led to legislation designed to reduce racial segregation and discrimination in the civilian sector. Images of my old unit, the 101st Airborne Division, maintaining order as the Little Rock Nine desegregated Central High School may have seemed to reflect a special role our military played outside the fractures that divided the nation. However, the data today is quite clear. While the U.S. military is broadly representative of the racial and ethnic makeup of the country, it continues to lack diversity in the most senior ranks, and there are documented racial disparities in disciplinary actions. Additionally, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the resultant mass demonstrations insisting the worth of black lives be recognized. A growing number of men and women of color within the military are opening up about racist discrimination they have experienced from their brothers and sisters in uniform. The armed forces do not exist in a bubble protected from the problems that plague civilian society. Those that fill military ranks are drawn from the same communities that continue to wrestle with these challenges nationwide. Why are we tackling these issues as a national security think tank? Well, I firmly believe that in addition to being personally harmful to those experiencing racist behavior, diversity and inclusion failures also threaten America's military competitiveness by not taking full advantage of the nation's rich talent pool. If anyone is not swayed by the moral imperative to seek equality and equity for all, I hope they will recognize the national security threats inherent in allowing groupthink to dominate discussions at the top when only one perspective is represented as well as the dangers the military faces when it bleeds talent by allowing discrimination to fester and thus driving out top performers who ultimately seek increased opportunities elsewhere. The military also has a unique ability to solve big problems when it wants to. With focused attention, strong leadership, and thoughtful course correction, the military can once again lead the nation as a beacon of equality and opportunity for those willing to serve. We're proud to partner with CNAS Adjunct Senior Fellow Jason Dempsey and Bishop Garrison from Human Rights First on hosting a series of monthly discussions on how to make military leadership more inclusive and diverse. To kick off the first event in this series, I'm very honored that Representative Anthony Brown, Vice Chair of the House Armed Services Committee, agreed to make opening remarks. A retired colonel in the United States Army Reserve who served as an aviator and JAG officer over the span of his military career, Representative Brown was among the nation's highest ranking elected officials to serve a tour of duty in combat 
when he deployed to Iraq in 2004. Hello, I'm Congressman Anthony Brown, Vice Chair of the House Armed Services Committee. I'm a retired colonel and spent 30 years in both the active. Today marks the first in a series of discussions hosted by the Center for a New American Security on how we can ensure that our nation's military is reflecting our values and living up to the promise of our founding ideals. This year, we find ourselves and our country in a time of uncertainty. The world faces a global pandemic at levels we haven't seen for more than a century. The novel coronavirus has disrupted each of our lives in profound ways, putting on hold or dramatically altering our daily routines, and for far too many, putting jobs and livelihoods out of reach. And the disruption has been felt by our brave men and women in uniform, as well as by their families. But our country also faces another pandemic that is sadly not new, but no less pernicious and deadly. This summer, highly visible instances of police violence against black men and women have led to a reckoning on race and the systemic injustices that continue to exist in our country. The killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, and Daniel Prude, and the shooting of Jacob Blake are part of a pattern of systemic racial violence that has existed for far too long in this country. Violence that is an extension of the historical injustice of slavery that has existed long before our country's founding and continues to touch our lives today. This moment of uncertainty, marked by equal measures of solidarity and division, has led to calls for action and change. As a grounding force in American life, our military has similarly grappled with these issues, issues of equity, of identity, justice, and what it means to serve one's country. These issues have spurred conversation, reflection, and debate, and have brought about a new sense of urgency to fostering a culture of diversity and inclusion within our ranks. Issues that my colleagues and I on the House Armed Services Committee are ready to address. Since President Truman signed an executive order ending racial segregation in the armed forces in 1948, our military has lived up to its promise in fits and starts. We've made progress. This year alone, we welcomed this country's first black service chief, the Navy's first black female tactical jet pilot, and the first female Green Beret. Today, 43% of the 1.3 million men and women on active duty are people of color. And more women serve today than at any point in our history. And yet, we've come short, short of our expectations, and fallen behind the curve in advancement, opportunities, recruitment, and inclusion. We cannot ignore the staggering lack of diversity in our military leadership. Only two of the 41 most senior generals and admirals in the military are black, and only one is a woman. Minorities comprise just 11% of fighter pilots and navigators, only 5% of Army Green Berets, 2% of Navy SEALs, and less than 1% of the Air Force's pararescue jumpers are black. Women have never exceeded 27% of nominations made by members of Congress to the prestigious military academies, and white supremacy, racism, anti-Semitism, and other toxic beliefs continue to exist and fester within our ranks. 57% of minority service members, according to a new survey by the Military Times, say they have witnessed white supremacy and racism among their fellow troops. These issues didn't just happen overnight. They grew out of a culture within our military, 
out of systemic barriers to recruitment and advancement, and out of years of delay and inaction from both military and civilian defense leaders and members of Congress. We can and must do better. Fostering a diverse and inclusive military isn't only morally right, it's an issue of national security. We cannot meet this moment in history or the challenges we face if we are not tapping into and rewarding the talents of Americans from diverse backgrounds and experiences. We cannot continue to build the most ready and lethal force unless we correct these longstanding issues and build an even stronger force. We must be intentional and targeted. Solving these problems will require attention from every level of government and every rank in our military. This year's National Defense Authorization Act represents a new and important starting point for the work to come. Drawn upon the efforts of Majority Whip Jim Clyburn and current and former members of the Congressional Black Caucus, we sought to put into action many of the recommendations from the Military Leadership Diversity Commission recommendations that were made nearly 10 years ago. We foster opportunities for women and minorities within our armed forces by bringing new visibility to congressional nominations to our service academies, creating new programs to inspire and teach the next diverse and inclusive generation of leaders in high school and college, mentoring and training minorities and women within the special forces and aviation communities, tapping into the talent at our historically black colleges and universities and other minority serving institutions, and holding the Secretary of Defense and service secretaries accountable for making progress and giving them the tools to make it happen. We recognize that the same inequities that plague our civilian criminal justice system extend to our military justice system as well. So we create a special investigator to review and report on racial disparities in the military justice system and personnel practices with a requirement to come back with recommendations to fix the problem. It's a system where black soldiers today are nearly 51% more likely to face court-martial or non-judicial punishment than their white counterparts. We update workplace and climate surveys to include experiences with white supremacy and extremist activity, anti-Semitism and racism, allowing leadership, service members, Congress, and the public to finally understand the reach that these hateful beliefs have within the ranks and to better tailor solutions to root out these discriminatory beliefs. And finally, after decades of inaction, we reckon with a dark chapter in our nation's history. This country and black Americans have lived under the long shadow of slavery and racism for centuries, extending through the Civil War, Jim Crow, and up to today. We remove symbols of oppression that have been used to intimidate and threaten our fellow Americans, symbols that have no place in our military. This year's National Defense Authorization Act bans the display of the Confederate flag on Department of Defense property and directs the removal of the names on those military installations that bear the names of those men who betrayed their country to uphold white supremacy and fought a war on the side of the Confederacy to defend the institution of slavery. When we honor our country's past and the great deeds of our military, we should honor those who fought to make us better whose bravery unites all of us and our shared patriotism. Our diversity, our varied backgrounds and experiences are exactly what makes this country the greatest nation on the planet. And while there are many instances in our history where we have not fulfilled our nation's promise, there are just as many moments where we reaffirm our most basic founding ideals, 
where citizens answer the call to defend our nation, where everyday people come together to advance the cause of justice, and where leaders act on those calls for change. I believe the United States Armed Services are a force for good in this country providing opportunity and a common goal and creed for men and women who wish to serve our country in uniform and, like the country they serve and protect, the military as a whole is striving to become more perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for those inspiring and thoughtful remarks, Representative Brown. Once again, I'm very pleased that CNAS is able to host today's discussion on these vital issues. And now I'd like to turn it over to our moderators, Bishop and Jason. Uh, thank you so much, Kayla. And uh, thank you uh, to Representative Brown and to uh, CNAS for putting on uh, what I truly believe is not only an incredibly necessary uh, discussion and uh, series of discussions, uh, but one that really gives us the opportunity to, to bring together some of the most thoughtful people around these topics and have uh, incredibly important, thoughtful discussions. So with that, um, I just want to take this uh, opportunity to go ahead and introduce our panel. Uh, first and foremost, we're going to have a uh, Captain James Jimmy Anderson. He is a prior enlisted active duty Air Force officer uh, that is a, a staff intelligence officer. Uh, as a CNAS Next Gen National Security Fellow and former Fulbright Scholar, he is passionate to confront the Air Force's institutional challenges within diversity, equity, and the inclusion space. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Jimmy. Next, we have Melissa Bryant. She is a third-generation U.S. Army combat veteran, a noted advocate and consultant. Melissa most recently served as the National uh, Legislative Director for the American Legion and previously as the Chief Policy Officer for the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. A former military intelligence officer herself, her extensive record of public service and national security includes critical roles in both military and civil service in key leadership positions within the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Joint Staff, the United States Military Academy staff, and the U.S. and U.S. Army Intelligence. Melissa, thank you for joining us. Uh, next is Terrence Hayes. He is a 20-year veteran of uh, the United States Army and, a and the National Director of Communications and Public Affairs for uh, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, uh, the VFW. He serves as a national spokesperson for the nearly 1.5 million uh, total member organization on issues uh, ranging, ranging, excuse me, from national security and foreign affairs uh, to the proper care and treatment of veteran service members and their families. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, and uh, last but certainly not least is Kai Hunter. She is a Marine Corps veteran. She is currently a professor of military and strate strategic studies at the U.S. Air Force Academy and a senior adjunct fellow at CNAS. She is the former chair uh, for uh, employment integration on the Defense Advisory Committee for Women in the Services. Uh, Kai, thank you for uh, joining us as well. Um, and now uh, we'll uh, start with uh, 30 to 45 minutes of moderated questions and then open it up to the uh, audience for some of their questions. If you have questions for you, uh, these panelists, uh, please enter them into the chat box at any time. Uh, with that, uh, quickly, I also want to say on top of a uh, 
Hey, Kayla, I wanted to thank uh, Emma Moore, who's been uh, absolutely phenomenal in helping us uh, pull this together, as well as uh, my co-host, who I pass it now to, uh, Jason Dempsey. Jason. Thank you, Bishop. Uh, I'd also like to thank Representative Brown uh, for joining us and offering his poignant remarks and all the CNS team for putting this together. And thanks to Bishop for these introductions. Uh, to all the guests who've taken time out of their day-to-day, uh, -day, uh, welcome. Um, again, for those who don't know me, I'm Jason Dempsey. Uh, for those that do know me, uh, yes, this is my Zoom shirt. Uh, you aren't necessarily just experiencing deja vu. Um, but that aside, uh, welcome to today's discussion. Um, while it's the first in this particular series uh, from CNAS, uh, it certainly isn't the first discussion of race in the military. And obviously, there's some positive dynamics to that, but there's also clearly some negative trends in that, uh, you know, this started with the Fahey uh, Committee, launched after the integration of the services in 1948, initiated years of discussions on integrating uh, minorities in the military. That was followed by the Gazelle Committee in 1962. Uh, and then most recently, uh, in 2009 to 2011, the Military Leadership and Diversity Commission, which released its final report in 2011. And they, these efforts have all obviously been paired with numerous uh, studies commissioned by the services themselves. Yet, as we heard from Representative Brown, we still face fairly significant issues in terms of integration in the armed forces. We're still trying to implement and react to some of the problems identified by the MLDC and implement some of its recommendations nearly a decade later. This is indicative of kind of the long-term trends of these struggles in that they're often reactionary. Uh, an awareness arises, we react with a commission, uh, we tinker at some structural changes at the margins, uh, and then it kind of peters out and we wait till we're forced to do the next thing. So I'm hoping that today's discussion, I'm sure it will, will kind of help tee up uh, these longer discussions that aren't just an iteration of everything we've done before. Obviously we're learning and growing from those previous discussions, uh, but I hope we address some of the key questions of, you know, why, haven't, why hasn't the military done better? Uh, what should it be doing better? And can, most importantly, uh, can this moment be different? What I'd like to do now is give each of the panelists a few moments to make some opening remarks from which we'll move to uh, some moderated questions. And if any of you do have questions uh, for our panelists, uh, please put them in the chat box and we'll start sorting through them uh, after we're done with some moderated questions. First, I'd like to turn it over uh, to Jimmy for his remarks. All right, hey, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Jason, thank you for, for the opening remarks. and. Um, uh, and and really setting the stage. So again, you know, I, I'm an intelligence officer currently in the Air Force, uh, but my journey in the Air Force started as an enlisted troop. Um, I was an enlisted member uh, at Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia, which is roughly an hour and a half away from where Ahmaud Arbery was gunned down, essentially. Right. Um, you know, so I was an enlisted member who who you know on 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 a time where I was trying to do community service on base driving back to base was pulled over uh, and was harassed for, for uh, making a simple U-turn um, and in, in a experience that is traumatic to me, right? Um, and so many people are still experiencing many of these things now. 
but I just want to, you know, offer something to, to the listeners out there um, and folks who are offering, um, you know, comments and, and, you know, any sort of commentary suggestions on this uh, type of issue. And Jason alluded a little bit to it, which is how do we make change, structural and institutional uh, change, how do we make that sustainable? How do we make that lasting? Um, how do we address issues in justice, promotion, advancement, um, issues uh, not only, you know, because, you know, uh, Jason alluded to some of those commissions, mostly uh, talked about integration and also talked about a lot of combating overt racism, right? But let's talk about things like, of course, unconscious bias, which is a very prominent thing now. We've been having those discussions across the services, uh, but, but microaggressions, right? The, there, there are so many um, things that we can unpack here. But I would just um, leave you with this as my opening comments, which is um, try to identify some of the things that are service specific. So for me in the Air Force, uh, some of the things that I think about all the time are, are technology, uh, innovation. I think of people first. I think of grassroots uh, sourcing for, for innovation. Um, you know, and so w when you think of all these things, these are sort of strategic analysis. Those are things that are, that are, that are you know, most Air Force members can speak that language when they're talking about service culture. Um, so now I think we need to pull at those threads and really link that uh, to what we can do in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and I hope to tease that a little bit more out in some of the question and answers, uh, but, but I'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That's great. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, Melissa? Thank you, Jason. Um, I'll, I'll keep my remarks fairly short because I, I, I can't wait to dig into this conversation. In the introduction, uh, Bishop spoke to my family service, which grounds everything that I do. My grandfather was a Buffalo soldier in World War II. He was killed in action. Um, and when my father was nine years, uh, excuse me, nine months old. And my father served in Vietnam. Um, he volunteered. He did ROTC at Tuskegee and then continued on through to um, uh, finish out his career 27 years. Um, and then for myself, my father commissioned me uh, from Hampton University, known as a trend of HBCUs, which I hope we, we dig a bit more into there, um, you know, in terms of investment into uh, officers and moving forward. This is a part of the, the culture that has always been within the military. The um, black community has often looked at the military as a pathway to the middle class. We've often looked at the military as a way of gaining um, leadership skills and the type of skills that you need in order to achieve in business and, and other industries. However, it hasn't always been as rewarding to us. Um, if you are any way familiar with what the Buffalo soldiers faced in World War II and the fact that they were practically used for cannon fodder. Um, it's devastating to read some of those accounts. Same goes for my father's treatment in Vietnam. Same goes for my own treatment while I was on active duty uh, to include incidents that happened while I was downrange uh, during Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so my family's experiences, my personal experiences, and then the conversation that's happening right now in 2020 um, really does ground at least uh, my comments today. And I hope that it will at least give way to greater conversation amongst the group uh, of how we can do better. And I think that's the whole point of where we are right now in 2020. Some of these conversations have been same old, same old. We need to move past it and do better. And let's talk about systemic change and going forward. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate this conversation today. Uh, thank you, Melissa. Um, Terrence? 
Yeah, Jason, uh, thanks, uh, you know, to my esteemed uh, colleagues here, you know, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to join you today to talk about, you know, something that's near and dear to, to me and uh, race in the military. You know, race in the military or, or the topic of race in any setting, you know, leads to uncomfortable conversations because one has to be thrust in the space of another individual's world. You know, I served in our nation's greatest U.S. Army for 20 years. I lived, trained, dined, fellowshiped, and went to combat with men and women from every corner of the country. I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. However, I would like to ensure the experience is much better for the next generation of youngsters embarking on an adventure of dedicating their lives, remember their lives, to a country that perhaps loves them a little more than it did yesterday. So I'm here to encourage dialogue, not build barriers. I'm here to educate, not differentiate. I'm here to help unite just as my fellow teammates are here today. And I hope that everybody who's on this call today joins us in that call of action. And I look forward to all the questions that you have. Much appreciated, uh, Terrence. And lastly, for opening remarks, I'll turn it over to, to Kai. Thank you so much. And I, I echo everyone else here of uh, just being truly honored to be part of uh, this group, um, as well as extending thanks to CNAS for being so willing to lean into some of the hardest conversations that we need to have right now, because it's the only way we get better. Um, I am so at awe of my, my fellow colleagues who um, have dedicated their lives to service. Um, being a Marine as a white woman is often hard enough, and they had uh, several more intersectional structural um, issues that I even had. And, you know, Terrence really want to echo when I now at USAFA get to look out to my class and see how much more diversity actually is there. It really is, I think, an essential time to dig into these conversations, because despite everything going on in the world, these young women and men raised their hand and said they want to give their lives to defend. Um, just a few quick things real, uh, real quickly to open with here. You know, we talk a lot about these big microstructural changes that are absolutely essential to happen. But I want to encourage everyone to also think about some of the smaller and sort of like less sexy military stuff that we need to think about for changing. Things like height and weight standards and the way that we score our, our physical fitness tests, which these are things that have been historically built off of male Caucasian bodies. And little, we talk about microaggressions. Well, it's also some of the death by thousand cuts of if you even are the biggest you know, PT stud who's out there, but you have to get taped for body fat every time you do a test because you don't fit the male Caucasian standard of what a body looks like, it's one more way that you are otherized, that you are differentiated with. We think about grooming standards. If you have to get shave chits, if you have to get waivers for how you do your hair because there are physical side effects by what we say, and again, the male Caucasian ideal, by the way your grooming standards are, it's one more of those death by thousand cuts that continue to otherize, that put these small cleavages in the, in the bridges that the military really has the ability to build. And so as we're talking about these big things, I think it's also really important to start looking through where are these little things that we, we overlook often in discussions of systemic racism, things like 
body fat, not something we tend to talk about, but really I'm excited to lean into this hard conversation as well as real creative, actionable solutions that every single one of us are bringing to this. Thank you very much. I, I would say, you know, to, to start and kick off this discussion, we couldn't ask for a better set of uh, perspectives. And I think one of the things we're deliberately trying to do here is actually get the perspectives of those who serve. Uh, and for too often, um, you know, the perspective of those who serve or the privileged voice has been that of white males. Um, and so it's easy to be indifferent about the rest of the issues facing uh, what's become the bulk of the force. Uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say that, you know, the most with senior ranks that are overwhelmingly white and male, uh, there are a preponderance of discussions about race in the military among military leaders uh, can be boiled down to a bunch of white guys sitting in a room uh, reassuring each other that they're not racist. Uh, instead of actually digging in and, and trying to get at what are some of these uh, challenges uh, that members of their force are actually facing. So, uh, you know, the, the first question I would have, um, and I want to open this to all panelists, is really about both uh, not just the perceptions of senior military leaders, but it was conventional wisdom in American society at large for a long time uh, that the military led society in these issues and that the military was an exemplar for others to follow. It may or may not be, and I'd be interested to know if that is the case. Um, two, are there maybe negatives uh, to that image or maybe that misperception um, and then should we in the military, should the military be looking at society or should, should society be looking uh, to the military for positive lessons? Um, you know, kind of where do we stand and does that conventional wisdom still hold? And I'll open that up to all the panelists. Um, we can just, we can go with uh, Melissa, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump right in and that the simple answer to your question is all the above. Um, the military needs to look to society, society needs to look to the military. The military is a microcosm of society. However, when you're looking at the military as this bastion of great ideals, we haven't always gotten it right. Yes, the military was the first to, uh, to integrate, uh, for example, before we integrated uh, within society, before we struck down all the Jim Crow laws and, and other things. But that was a very long road to get to. Again, I start with what grounds me, and that's my own family history. And that starts with my grandfather, who served pre-integration of the forces in segregated units. And that legacy continued on. And it continued on in how they value our service in that uh, we were often funneled into MOSs that uh, we thought were the ones that were best for black and brown people. You were postal, you were uh, adjutant general, you were working in supply or something along those lines. And it was kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, the conventional wisdom even of those who were enlisting was that this will give you skills on the outside. This will give you marketable skills that you can take forward with you. But that was also a constraint that was an arbitrary constraint that was put onto us by society's ideals of what you can do in terms of being a leader. Um, for example, when my father said, yes, I'm going to go into the military and he did ROTC, he said, I want to be infantry um, because he knew that that's the pathway to success. That's the pathway to where you get general officers. If we're all going in under quartermaster, then we're only, you're 
severely uh, decreasing the likelihood of being able to rise to those upper echelons of leadership so that we can actually influence decision-making. So um, th there's a lot to unpack there. And I, I don't want to take away time from, from everybody else, but that's why I start with all of the above and that some of the constraints you've had in the military have been put upon us by what's outside in society. Um, and then some of us, we put onto ourselves. Um, but unfortunately, it's become so baked in at this point that we need complete reversals of how we go about changing that. And it starts with investment um, in, in, you know, the junior enlisted investment in uh, junior officers and ensuring that there are pathways that are cleared forward. There's mentorship. Um, I, I could go on for days, but I see nods of my colleagues here and I want to turn it over. I know Terrence is unmuted. No, why don't you jump in, brother? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Melissa. I mean, you, you definitely stated it very well. Um, you know, only 1% of uh, our American population or a little over will actually volunteer to serve in our, in our nation's military. I mean, you do the math. Um, with that said, there's the 99%. These, these individuals are coming from society. They're coming from our, our cities and, and towns within our nation. They're a representative of what the nation is. Um, you know, we can't automatically expect uh, these young men and women, some older as they came from or forget how they grew up automatically because they instantly join our nation's military. And while we want our military to be that standard barrier, bear, barrier um, or bear, I'm sorry, we, we, we definitely want that. But at the end of the day, we have to change a behavior. And, and as everybody knows, um, change behavior doesn't happen overnight. Um, you know, you look at a child, for example, you know, the average child will learn, you know, most of their ethics and morals by the time they're at the age of eight and 10. So you do the math with, uh, with, with these young adults or these older adults who are coming into a military system to just automatically forget where they came from and how they, you know, you know did business is, is difficult. And, uh, but, but it's gonna get done, you know, it, it, it tends to get done. You know, we try to, in the military, uh, you know, teach a new ethical and moral system to our, our men and women. And I think the military does a good job of doing that. Um, at the same time though, we have to have the difficult conversations. You can't pretend like, you know, things aren't happening. Uh, you know, when you get into the, uh, you know, we're all the same. We all wear the same uniform. To me, that's a, that's a fancy cop-out for not wanting to have the deep conversations about, you know, what's affecting my sister and brother. You know, what, it, what is affecting my Hispanic brother and sister? You know, well, I, we serve together. We, we all bleed green. We all wear the same uniform. That's me saying I really don't want to get involved in what's actually bothering you you know, or, or get to know you or, or those type of things. So I think it's vital that we, you know, peel back that, that onion and, and actually understand that we're a microcosm of society first and that it takes a, t it takes a long time to change behaviors. You know, it's not going to happen overnight, but we have to be willing at all levels from leadership on down to the lowest level, because that's where it happens at the grassroots, at those, those uh, squad leader levels, at the first sergeant levels, at the, at the platoon leader levels, you know, the leaders can only do so much, but it starts at that ground roots where those troops come in contact with those daily leaders who have the influence upon them. If we can get those leaders to have those tough conversations with their, with their troops and their battle buddies, I think we can make a world of difference, but it has to start there. And I think just to, to push off that, that's absolutely the, you know, one of the big problems that we have in the military is that, yeah, we, the military has led in so far as the big macro legal policies that are there. 
you know, prior to the full civil rights act, the military was integrated. You can look at this with other groups as well. The repeal of don't ask, don't tell, you know, prior to DOMA being fully, fully struck down. So I think the military is good at making these big micro or big macro changes, but often gets bogged in the details. Like everything, the devil is in the details of how it is actually executed. And for too long, I think the, the military has made as a cop out the we all bleed green or we're all colorblind. And I think, you know, Jason, really to your point, discussions have been a bunch of white men sitting around saying, well, I'm not racist because I treat everybody the same. And that, that tends to be how these senior leadership discussions go. Look, there's equal opportunity. There aren't any restrictions based on race, gender, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation anymore. So we're not racist. And that's, that's how the the conversations go and we miss and it and it's where those mid-level leaders in particular come come in at how are we having the hard conversations to ensure that equal opportunity is actually equal opportunity you know to what right. melissa said are we funneling in consciously or or subconsciously different ethnicities or races into certain mos's because we think that's where they belong or they think that's what we're long and we're not challenging that you know, it's our responsibility to challenge that conventional wisdom. Are we saying that once you get to ROTC or an academy, yeah, everybody has equal opportunity to serve, whereas we know that school districts in high school don't necessarily have equal education opportunities. You know, are we basing a lot of our initial assessment on you on recruits or cadets on their ability to swim, which is something I know that's big in the Marine Corps. When you show up to the basic school, one of the first things you do is a swim qualification. We know that there are historical ingrained barriers to actually a robust swimming education for people. Something that we don't, again, we don't think about when we think about these systemic inequalities that exist. So yeah, we, we lead in those big macro sides, but without having these hard more implementation conversations. What structures lower down do we have to affect to actually allow for true equality and opportunity to exist? Which is why I think these, these conversations are so important and also really empowering those more junior and mid-level leaders to have the conversations, the hard conversations about what's going on is so key and important right now. And if I could just quickly dovetail on something Kai just said, you know, well, you've said death by a thousand cuts, which resonates so much with me personally. Um, those junior and mid-level leaders, I mean, and I, I left the army in 2009. I went straight into civil service. And a part of it was because it's infuriating and invalidating to not be heard. You want to see someone go nuclear? Tell a white guy that he's racist or that he said something racist. And you'll watch a guy just go nuclear. And it's, it's the worst thing ever to accuse someone of being racist rather than con them confronting, maybe I did just say something that I don't understand the context of because it's not my lived experience. Um, and it, it, it boggled my mind in 2009. It boggles my mind 11 years later that we're still having these conversations. But that's step one. And when you talk about death by a thousand cuts, that's a cut that I've suffered many, many times. <laughs> And, and, and Jason, if I could just jump in here at the end, and I won't take too long here. Um, the only the only thing, you know, I echo everything that, that y'all said, and, and, you know, I agree. So I think the, the only thing that I would, would in just a small snapshots is just every time uh, you talk and you have that conversation, sort of what Melissa was talking about, saying, hey, you know, you're racist, or there are, you know, things that exist in the military that, 
you know, are, you know, have negative impacts on me staying in for 20, right? Um, when you have that conversation about race, uh, many people will then point to, well, equality, we've already figured it out, much like Kai has, has said, hey, we've eliminated all forms of discrimination. Um, just look at the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Just look at an Air Force instruction or regulation. And I say, well, I'm glad you're talking about equality, but we need to talk about equity. Let's have that conversation. And the very first question they ask me is, what, what is equity, right? So, so that type of convert, that, those type of terms need to be normalized. And I would say, when you look at tech, when you look at private sector, they don't have it figured out all the way either. Uh, but some of those terms do come a little bit easier to them. <laughs> what is what is equity mean? What does diversity and inclusion really mean? Um, so I, I would offer that. Then the second thing that I would say is just a a, whole, a cultural change, right? So, you know, we we could say, hey, does does the has the military learned from society or has society learned from the military? Which one cause and effect? Um, I would say that, you know, yes, both to, to what Melissa said, I, th I think all of the above, but it, as far as this whole scale, you know, this cultural design about DEI, right? So when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to conceptualizing in a regulation, um, what diversity, equity, equity, inclusion is, uh, when it comes to that institutionalization and that imp implementation and making sure that when you, when you set up a project on DEI, which, which most people are afraid to have that conversation anyway, that it's actually sustainable, right? That, there's, that, that when the next leadership comes in, they just don't uproot everything that's been done by the previous person. So I think this, this wholesale sustainable sort of cult, cultural change um, is, is, is necessary. And that's something that we've been lacking for a long time. Yeah, uh, thank you that for uh, thank you folks for that. This has been a really uh, dynamic conversation. If you actually have already hit on a few um, themes that we wanted to continue on with some of our questions, so uh, I think it was Terrence that first mentioned the idea of everyone bleeds green and not seeing color, <laughs> and uh, we've I think uh, particularly service members of of color have heard some of these topics uh, over and over again and. And the the ongoing muting of uh, immutable traits, so to, uh, so to speak, kind of the muting of of cultures outside of the, the the military culture. So, all of you have kind of already, I think, hit the edges on this. But we just want to discuss a little bit about why you think race is such a hard topic to discuss openly, uh, and then to to follow on from that, do you think it's harder to discuss the issues of race within the military, or is it? Uh, a little bit harder to discuss them in a uh, civilian society. And, and that, uh, Terrence, if you want to start, you can begin or whoever wants to jump in there. Yeah, thanks, Bishop, uh, for bringing that up. Uh, race, um, it's a difficult conversation because I think people are not willing to get comfortably uncomfortable. Um, it's one of those situations where, you know, if, if I don't understand something that, you know, say Kai is going through, I just dismiss it automatically, you know, or, or that's not, that doesn't go on because, you know, it, it doesn't exist in my world. And uh, so if I'm not paying attention to it, you know, in my little brain, uh, I'm just telling myself that, Hey, it, it doesn't really happen. And I think that's where the, uh, the, the challenge is for folks. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, I felt so bad for years, decades, you know, when I was in the military, like I said, I was in two decades and I felt so bad for my, my fellow sisters in, in arms, you know, the, the, the black women 
and in the military who were told how to wear their hair a certain way. Um, th that's a systemic issue. Th they're telling you to, you need to look a certain way. That's based on another look of a different race. Culturally, our black women can't maintain their hair that way or their hair will be damaged or fall out or other things. Trust me, I know this. I have a daughter, I have a wife um, who have natural hair and, and the way that they take care of it, it could be damaging if you, they have to uh, do it a certain way. And I think that's a systemic issue. When they were reviewing the process for hair and things of that nature for, you know, women, uh, I think I, what I was told was, and I was at the Pentagon at the time, that unfortunately there was, I think only one, maybe one uh, African-American woman on the panel to, to discuss the issue of, of, uh, of women of color and their hair. That's, right. unaccept that's unacceptable. You know what I'm saying? Because once again, first, folks need to be educated on why, uh, a, 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 you know, one culture does things a certain way. You know, and this isn't about black and white. This is about, you know, our Hispanic brothers and sisters, our Asian American brothers and sisters, our Native American brothers and sisters. Those cultural aspects need to be brought to the table. There needs to be a discussion. There can't be this, well, you know, uh, the stiff arm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about that. I don't know about it. Allow us to educate so then we can have the discussion so we can come to the conclusions to better help uh, these individuals, but also to make our force that much more better because that's what it's all about. This is a readiness problem, whether people want to talk about it or not. It's a readiness problem because you have individuals right now who are highly qualified to join our military, but will not join our military because of the strict rules when it comes to their appearance, their culture and things of that nature. That's unacceptable. And we have to be able to change that and have those conversations. Well, thank you Juan for being a, a boss girl dad and, and fierce ally of, of women because yes, being on the other side of that First, relaxers, chemicals, things that we put into our hair, they can cause cancer. Like, it's not just a grooming standard. It's not just where it looks cute. It could cause cancer. So um, we're having a whole revolution on, on natural hair uh, within, you know, the black and, and brown culture. And it's wonderful, but I can't put a little, you know, wool beret on top of this hair. Right now it's pretty neat, but that's a product. So, I mean, that's what you got to understand is that these things impact our health it can also impact even the trajectory of our career i'm so thankful to hear that da photos now are going away because they're stupid uh i'll just say it like they're stupid like they put plastic up your arms and fill out your uniform in certain places try to smooth it down in the front i'm sorry i have breasts i'm a woman so like these are things that you know the military you have to talk about getting uncomfortable in case people who don't know me who are watching melissa bryant's pretty real when i describe things and that's that's how it is. And that's how we'll change. It'll be successive conversations at a time. But um, I, I will tell you, it's, it's a struggle to be a black woman sometimes operating and navigating in these spaces for many reasons. I cannot tell you how many times I've been told I'm emotional, that I need to subdue my passions, that I'm angry, that I'm righteous. And I'm like, yeah, I am angry and I'm righteously angry for a lot of reasons. And it's because oftentimes I'm the only one in the room and I'm not a wallflower. I have no qualms in speaking up and saying something is wrong or misguided. And you have to navigate that space with tact. And sometimes you just run out of patience for the tact. Because, again, death by a thousand cuts, to, to quote Kai again. And you get tired of having to be polite 
when you know you've been carrying on your back the weight of so much and the weight of the ancestors, you know, the weight of, of your troops that you're trying to take care of, of being a role model for um, everyone within your unit. Again, as a black woman and also as a black woman who worked in intelligence as an officer, I can tell you I was often the only one. Um, when I saw another person, it's like, hey, what's up? How you doing? Because we at least were able to commune and to commiserate. But it's hard when you are basically the standard bearer for an entire people. And it's unfair because it's not just my perspective. It's other perspectives that need to come into this as well, which is why we need to have that equity at the table to Jimmy's point. And we need to have more than just one or two of us at the table because that's tokenism. That's not equity. And that's not parity. If I could, if I could jump in on, on Melissa's, because I think it, it's what I'm going to say is definitely probably a lot of what you said, which is, you know, there, there's a lot of weight, I think, you know, and I learned from being enlisted and being an officer, I've seen these two different worlds, right? Where um, when I was enlisted, it was like, hey, we're all young, uh, at least when we were younger. And it was like, hey, we could kind of do whatever we want. Then I crossed over, became an officer. And then I started to have these, these conversations with myself in the mirror saying, should I dress this way or should I uh, tell people that I listen to trap music, right? Or rap music, right? Like it, it, it was, it's, it's this way that you, that you do feel that I, um, you know, would, would in these conversations when we're having them um, in our small, I know that that's a big thing right now across the services. Folks are saying at the top, they're saying, Hey, we need to have these hard conversations. We need to do, you know, we need to make sure we talk about tough issues. I do. Um, and I think we need to talk about that type of weight. Um, but I would also offer this too, and this is much more of an organizational thing. If you are not, if, you, if, if a commander is setting up some sort of um, focus group or setting up some sort of panel organization that addresses these issues, and they're pinning, you know, they're picking the one black person that is, is, is fairly close to them and, and putting them on as the action officer or point person on this, um, you, you failed. Um, an organization that addresses these types of things, DEI, it needs to be strategic, funded, it needs to be scaled across the, across the organization. Um, if you aren't doing that, um, you have missed the boat, and that will, will lead to this, this sort of breaking off over time where we won't be able to have those conversations. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Don't reduce us to a PowerPoint. Yeah. Well, and I think to to add to something that sort of I think we're talking around but not fully embracing is to really internalize and have this hard conversation. We as DOD, like big, big DOD here, need to also fundamentally change what we think about when we think about the definition of security and uh, you know, stability and who who security are are we talking about in this regard? You know, that historically we've talked about when we talk about security, it's okay. Are we trained to shoot our guns straight, drop bombs on target? Do we have uh, the right technology to access the intelligence we need for the door kickers who are going in to get the terrorists? I mean, that that's essentially what we think about when we think about security. We rarely brought into that definition. How, what is the, care and feeding to recruit and retain the most talented people to actually do that. And when we look at that and we, you know, there's been, there's been this sort of talk around to, you know, culture and, you know, hair is one of the ways that it's really shown, but culture more broadly, you know, we know from research, 
the more complex a problem it, that's there, the more diverse of a team you need to actually address it. And if you, through these smaller structural things, whether it's height, weight, standard, or grooming, you're telling somebody that their historic cultural perspective is invalidated to be part of this institution, they are not going to bring forward their perspective to solve these complex problems. You know, every single service chief right now has across the board said, the world is getting more complex and we need to recruit a more diverse force to approach it. Like that's across the board. Well, I'd argue that to do that, we need to fundamentally change how we talk about security. It's not just being able to shoot straight, but it's being able to actually leverage a, a population. Um, and we talk about it being a force readiness issue. It's also a national security issue, because if you look at the jammers data that's out there, white men are becoming less and less eligible to serve, just in terms of across the board. You know, uh, and, and we can whole nother discussion, discuss why that is, but you want a ready force you know, what you got to do is you've got to recruit and retain diverse talent and not pay lip service to it, but actually say why, what is the end state of doing this? It is making us more secure because a, we better represent our country, but we're all able to, and B, we're able to solve more complex problems. And we've, it's hard to have that conversation to say security is more than bombs and guns, but that's, I think, this critical piece as to why this conversation is so hard and hasn't moved beyond what we just all, all believe great. Yeah. yeah, I think, so there's some really fascinating threads um, to this conversation, and which is obviously why we decided to set this up as a six-month uh, conversation. Uh, but I'd like to tease out and, and ask you guys to address, uh, you know, everybody always talks about pipelines. And for our listeners, I think it's really important to understand how unique uh, Melissa's story is about having several generations who have served and who are able to then mentor the next generation. Hey, don't go quartermaster, go infantry, right? Obviously the people most likely that have grandparents in service are white guys. Um, and so there's less of that institutional knowledge that gets kind of passed down about how to succeed in this, uh, in this trade. Um, but I would also then flip it and say, Whenever we do these commissions, and I had um, the privilege and or duty to serve on one at one point, we always point to structural issues. We always say, well, HBCUs are pushing out too many quartermasters. Um, you know, African-Americans are self-selecting into non-combat arms branches, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my response to that is, well, the pipeline has technically, to Kai's point, legally been open for 50 plus years. So how do we resolve this issue? Because after 50 years, even though, even though Melissa's uh, previous generations of her family did the right things, we still see uh, a dramatic underrepresentation of minorities in the senior ranks. So there's something beyond cult or structural issues at play. Um, I guess, and, and so the big question is, right, if there's a chicken egg dynamic here, uh, between, well, we need to have more people in the room so we recognize challenges, but we can't get more people in the room until they get promoted. How do we, how do we disentangle that, that big mess I just described or tried to describe? Um, well, well, there is no one silver bullet for it, that's for sure. It's something where um, it's going to require mentorship of black and brown 
uh, enlisted and, and, and cadets. It, it's really that simple. And it means that there needs to be a vested interest in growing that talent and recognizing what we bring to the table. Um, at the time, because uh, I feel like I'm a thousand years old at this point, when I was commissioned, going infantry wasn't an op option for me. Um, I, you know, decided military intelligence and went to law school and, you know, took a different path because even there, there was a gendered path of where you could pretty much go um, at that point. You were limited in your combat arms roles. Now that that uh, gate's been opened for women, you may start to see more general officers and, and women moving forward. However, that's a 30-year pipeline, and it's going to take that long in order to get there, and we don't have that long to wait. And you have folks who get frustrated around mid-career when you're like, okay, do I, do I move on uh, beyond 04? Do I decide to continue on with my career? Or do I go elsewhere? And in my case, I decided, well, I'm just going to take my career path uh, in a different direction in the civilian route since I was intelligence and there was a way in which I could do that. Even there, though, and I will say for our non-military, and I'm sorry that my cat likes to be a part of these things, um, <laughs> even there, I'm, there's a lack of uh, senior executive service members who can mentor as well for, um, for Black and Brown women. And so for me, it really does boil down to mentorship. Um, I've sought out mentors before, and then I've also had mentors uh, come to me, but it was always kind of fleeting. Um, you've got to build that tribe of mentors because you're not going to get everything that you need from one person. But it shouldn't always be me reaching out. It should also be some of them coming to us. And there needs to be structured mentorship programs that come to us to start to break down those barriers. And it starts with, don't begin conversations with, well, I don't see color. To me, you're purple. That was very well-meaning and very well-intentioned years ago. Let's get all that out of our vernacular and let's start with a 2020 vernacular of how we describe race and ethnicity and lived experiences and how that informs um, our, our, our worldview. And I think that that's really the start is with mentorship. And um, I don't know, I'll put a plug in again for HBCUs because I went to both Hampton and Howard. And one of the things that I'm very happy about seeing right now is a focus, a renewed focus on HBCUs as a commissioning source, because there are so many of us that come out of there and we get some of that nurturing that you would not receive, but for going to an HBCU. Uh, I'm very proud of the fact that like, I came through the Pirate Battalion at Hampton because some of that nurturing and understanding and that grounding started there as a cadet. And some of my colleagues who were uh, commissioned from uh, other commissioning sources didn't receive that. And that's something that needs to change. Lastly, also even at West Point, which I know this is, and I, I focus on Army, of course, but across all the academies, that's something also that needs to change is making sure that we're not just celebrating the, the 17 that graduated out of 908 that year. We're, we need to ensure that we're getting to a point of 50-50. Yeah, I, I'm going to jump and, and on just, that too, uh, Melissa. Uh, and know. I just want to say for the panelists quickly, uh, if you could uh, just try to uh, keep your remarks brief here, we want to make sure we save some time to get to some of the audience questions as well. No doubt. I'll keep it Sorry short. Sorry to interrupt. No problem, Bishop. Um, yeah, mentorship. Uh, I think I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, when I first came into the uh, to the Army, I was a bright eyed young guy, you know, from Florida, thought I knew it all. And uh, the very first mentor I had was actually a, a Caucasian white man and uh, who actually was progressive, who actually understood uh, a lot of the things that I had dealt with. And uh, and I and I big up him, you know, to this day. He was able to, you know, guide me on on a correct path and and kind of explain to me 
uh, how, you know, the army operated and, and how I needed to maneuver my career. He didn't have to do that. Uh, I didn't have to be receptive of it, but we were able to click because of the, the, the mentorship aspect of it or us being able to have those tough conversations. And uh, to this day, um, I credit that individual because I was able to maneuver in my army career uh, to, to the heights that I was able to because of uh, individuals like that, that person there. And uh, and that's where, you know, like Melissa said, we have to be willing to, as those leaders, gravitate to those youngsters or those 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 individuals who may not be on the right path and say, hey, come with me. Let me show you the ropes. Let me show you what you need to do. Let me show you where you need to be in order for you to maneuver here. Don't just bring on someone who may look like you or, or sound like you or come from where you come from. No. Bring on all your troops, you know, and educate them and, and school them on what they need to do to be better. And I think that's where it starts. All right, uh, uh, Kai and uh, Jimmy, if you did you have anything you want to add yeah, before we um, just 30 seconds, I, I would also argue that in addition to mentorship, we need to look at what are the standards we're using to screen for those sort of main effort career paths that I would say actually rightfully so a lot of our leadership comes from because that's the, the main effort. But, you know, the, the sort of adage that we're always fighting yesterday's wars, you know, kind of preparing for, for yesterday's wars. If there's this tension that we're talking about threats of the future, the force of the future, the diversity needed for the force of the future, but we're using standards from yesterday's wars to recruit and bring those people, people in. And so I think that's also when we think about that top level, what can leadership do is say, if we need diversity, why aren't we screening for those skill sets? as part of bringing people into the quote unquote main effort um, on that side. The only, the only thing that I'll add is just uh, when we're, when we're talking about pipeline um, echo and I, I um, connect with a lot of stuff that Melissa said. Um, but one thing that I think for HBCU specifically, just to go back to that point is that I think we, as a, as a department of defense have really missed a, a, an opportunity um, and when we think of our, specifically our officer pipeline, um, our officer pipeline obviously comes from service academies, RTC, OTS, and then you got folks who come off the street. You know, you got your prior enlisted, then you got your folks who come as civilians and become officers. Um, but we have this one thing that's mixed in there in the RTC and the Air Force Academy or in the service academy thing, which is called Corps of Cadets, which produce a lot of officers, tons of officers. Um, and so you have your Texas A&M's, your Virginia Tech's and Citadel and VMI. Um, and I really think that one thing that we can really do, and, and, you know, this may be small, I don't know, but really elevating, um, some of those battalions like your, like Hampton was mentioned. Hampton is an area which is located in tons, tons of military all around. What if we were able to really pump in tons of uh, black officers from places like Hampton, places like Tuskegee, really draw on the history and the background of the Air Force uh, and the military at large. So I would just offer that as, as one thing that I think I can add to the conversation on pipeline. Fantastic. Thank you, folks, for that. Um, we have about uh, 10 minutes uh, left uh, before we need to uh, properly wrap up. So we want to take this opportunity to take on a, a quick little uh, Q&A from the audience. Uh, we've got some uh, fantastic questions coming in. So I apologize to the audience. We're not going to be able to get to all of them, but we're going to do our best to uh, uh, to quickly hit as many as we can. I'd ask uh, for you folks to uh, try to keep your answers as brief as you can, understanding that these are incredibly dense questions uh, and topics. We're not going to uh, solve racism throughout the military <laughs> uh, with a 
30-second answer, but we're going to do our best to try to hit as many of these as we can. Um, so first off, Jimmy, I, I want to start with you on this. I know we, uh, all of the panelists uh, and my, myself and Jason have also uh, discussed this a bit too previously. We've talked about the, the upside down or pyramid numbers uh, within uh, the military right now in terms of uh, the number of enlisted. I believe Representative Brown said it was around uh, just over 40 percent around uh, 43% people of color, but then you see a stark contrast with uh, uh, officers, uh, given those numbers. One of our questions comes in asking, uh, based off of that is uh, composition, is the military more of a meritocracy or an aristocracy? Uh, and is, it, uh, is radical change needed in a way we uh, recruit and retain military officers? You kind of already hit a little bit on this in your last uh, remarks, but if you could just expand on that a bit. 30 seconds. Uh, 30 seconds. Yeah. So I almost brought up meritocracy and aristocracy earlier, but I thought I thought I would hold that because that's an intellectual discussion. Um, but but I, I think uh, what I would say on that is we model ourselves as a meritocracy. We talked a little bit about Jason's question earlier about which one impacts society or is it the you know military that impacts that change? We think of ourselves as a meritocracy, but in a lot of cases we are an aristocracy. Most of senior military leaders are from um, service academies are, are, are from Corps cadets um, uh, places, right? So, um, as well as from combat arms, right? So I think, you know, I, I don't know how, how we would slice and dice that, but on the retention part, I think it's, a lot of it has to do with, we, we, we talked a little bit about it earlier, having those conversations, those tough conversations for, for a black officer like myself, um, who crossed over from enlisted, which by the way, that is the majority of your uh, black officers, your, your people of color who become officers who are prior enlisted, um, that, that makes up a wide body, body of your minority officers, by the way. And so, you know, I would just say that uh, we need to be, definitely have those interpersonal conversations at the, at the squadron unit level. Um, and, and that's all I have there. Fantastic. Kai, you want to uh, yeah, I think I think to this this point that Jimmy really raised, you know, the the service academies have a disproportionate role in producing the most senior leaders that are that are out there of all of the services and we can get into like the whole historical side of that. So I think there's a really important role that they need to play that the servant, we, I'll say as someone at a service academy right now, um, needs to, to play in how we recruit. Um, the role of prep schools for the service academies, I think needs to be sort of doubled down upon because they are a place where some of those structural inequalities that exist among the education system um, can actually, are actually flattened. Um, there and I and so I think there needs to be much more discussion about how nominations are made, um, how prep school, you know, the prep school pipeline there, what the athlete pipeline is into the academies. I mean, that's something we we can't ignore either. Um, you know, and what opportunities are, how we can be more creative in breaks in service to accommodate some of those more non-traditional paths in there. Um, but that's a that's a conversation that people don't want to have too hard because, you know, why mess with tradition? Um, you know, it's got this great, you know, they, it's just even the way that the academies um, talk about themselves. And, you know, I feel like an outsider now at one coming from a non-academy commissioning source, but it's such an important part of uh, what we're actually, what we're actually doing here. Yeah. If I could just take 10 seconds just to say, um, I also was staff at, at West Point having been commissioned at 
at Hampton. And so I, I have that kind of same unique view that uh, Kai did as well. And that is, um, we need to address the fact that even within the Congressional Black Caucus, for example, a lot of them will not give nominations to good service academies. And that's been a historical barrier as well. And they represent uh, areas where um, you, you have, you know, primary uh, majority minority uh, folks coming out of their districts, but have historically blocked doing nominations to service academies because they thought service academies were racist. Well, we can't fix that if you don't get nominations through. And so that's a challenge that needs to be addressed, even within our members of Congress. And I'm glad you also brought up the prep school pipeline, too, because far too often we see redshirting happen at the prep schools. Um, it, it's disproportionately impacting black and brown cadets who, and midshipmen who come in who end up at the prep school before they end up into um, into the academies. And that's another item that needs to be addressed as well. Yeah, these are complex issues once we start adding the academies, you know, throw out a vignette of once working for uh, a man who was adamantly against um, you know, anything that even reeked of uh, affirmative action or efforts to uh, be inclusive. Uh, yet, ironically, he could also keep in his head the idea um, that the pathway to the one of the Army's most elite commands, command of the 75th Ranger Regiment, uh, was strictly limited uh, to graduates of the United States Military Academy. Okay? And so he could simultaneously be incensed about not being in the right cohort uh, to be up for that command, but then uh, also not see how his attitudes towards including others was maybe hurting uh, the rest of the force. Um, Legacy admissions is affirmative action for white people. I mean, let, let's just put it bluntly. Um, and that's the case in the Ivies. We've seen that in the service academies too. Absolutely. Um, and it's certainly, you know, it's one of those things we have to say, why is, why is some preference, uh, better than others. Uh, so with that, I'd like to say, you know, we, we do have a fairly army specific panel, uh, but with at least one, you know, a couple of air force folks staking flags here. Um, can anybody discuss maybe what we've seen, uh, what, how the, is there the tension between the services and either getting forward or falling behind? Uh, how do we see that play out and where do we think, uh, you know, change is coming from currently? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, from a service standpoint, the Air Force, uh, you know, their leadership that's in place now currently um, from the chief master sergeant of the Air Force to, you know, obviously uh, the, uh, the Air Force chief um, leading the way. And in previous to that, the previous, you know, chief master sergeant of the Air Force. Uh, but the, the great thing I loved about their leadership team was that they were willing to talk about these issues. Uh, and not just talk about it, but hopefully try to change some of the, uh, you know, the structure behind, you know, some of these issues, the systemic problems within the ranks of hopefully having future uh, brown and uh, black people uh, move up the ranks to where they are. Uh, I think the Army sees it. I think uh, as, the, as the largest service, uh, they, they have to do better. Um, again, I, I have confidence in them. Uh, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, this slow incremental change will seep through. But uh, but I would love to see uh, some uh, some of our senior officers uh, take the ranks as our, our army chief. Um, when I served, I, I thought at least two of them were worthy to become the army chief. And somehow they got bypassed uh, by someone who was lesser ranked than them. Uh, 
which was strange to me. But uh, but that's where things, you know, get complicated. And I think that uh, that the Army, once again, being the largest institution, uh, has to do better when it comes to having uh, minorities within those ranks, women within those ranks uh, leading the way. And uh, I think it starts by leaning on the other services and seeing what the Air Force is doing right and, and seeing hey, and having those conversations. Hey, what what did you do to have these individuals move up in the ranks? And those are the conversations that our senior most leaders need to have in order to hopefully uh, change. Absolutely. I, I totally concur with everything that you said. And, and it's it's race. It's also gender, which I know is not necessarily the focus of, of this conversation. But the Air Force has generally led the way in terms of diversity in general um, and um, has been able to really promote women, promote um, uh, on both the enlisted, senior enlisted and on the senior officer side, uh, diversity of opinions. Because, again, it leads to groupthink. It leads to poor national security outcomes when you don't have enough of those folks at the table. And so um, I, I really do applaud uh, Chief Wright and everyone else for jumping in, not just in the military, but jump juxtaposing the military with where we are right now today, because they were the first to come out and speak after George Floyd, while a lot of organizations were hand wringing and fingering and saying, well, what do we say? It's obvious, it's wrong. And there's something to talk about and people wanna hear that. And you need to say it in a genuine way that doesn't feel like pandering um, and being open to, again, the difficult conversations. And it starts with that command climate that gets set and the Air Force is, is really uh, exemplifying that. I, I was just thinking like, when's the last time I read a SEC army that was, um, you know, uh, black, brown. And I think it was Togo West who went yeah. to my alma mater. And Melissa, and, not, not, and Melissa, not to let me cut you off, but I, I want to throw this point in there uh, for the army. And, and I, I'm giving this as a call to action. Alwyn Cash, why has this gentleman not been able to receive the Medal of Honor? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's just the bottom or line. Why did it take this long or why did it take this long to have this conversation even? You know, exactly. Yeah. These are, these exactly. are some of uh, Phenomenal points, folks, but uh, I, I hate to do this, but we're right up on top of time right now. So before we uh, pass this back over to uh, to Kayla to, uh, to close this out, just want to ask you quickly, like, you know, 10 seconds, if you could give us either one word or one sentence that you really want audience members to take away from this conversation today, uh, what might it be? Melissa, let's start with you, please. Have the conversations respect black women. Awesome. Jimmy. Uh, I would I would say uh, leverage your grassroots, your your airmen and your folks at the lowest level to get some of those uh, solutions, because they're the ones who are going to be the next generation. Right. They're the ones who are going to be our next senior leaders. Awesome. Uh, Kai. I think look at the small micro things that you think aren't part of security to actually have a fully diverse force. Awesome. And uh, Terrence? Again, education, not differentiation. Fantastic. Uh, well, thank you folks so much. Uh, uh, thank you, Jason. Uh, if you have, if you don't have anything you want to add, I want to pass it back over to, uh, to Kayla. Thank you so much to all the panelists for participating in this important conversation with such candor and passion. To Emma Moore for all the behind the scenes work it took to plan this panel, as well as to Bishop and Jason for framing the issues so thoughtfully and for moderating a 
deeply necessary discussion. Uh, as I mentioned, this is the first in a planned series. Our next event should be on November 18th. So please go to cnas.org, click follow to sign up for email updates from the Military Veterans and Society program or follow CNAS um, on Twitter. It's at CNASDC so that you can make sure to not miss any future sessions in this really important series. Um, Bishop, Jason, really appreciate everything that you've done to frame the issues so thoughtfully uh, once again. We're also going to be releasing some written commentaries that will delve into these issues on the side. So again, please follow us, stay involved, help us keep this conversation going. I know we didn't get a chance to get to all the really thoughtful and interesting questions that were posed in the chat and in the Q&A. So we will use those to help inform and shape some of the future discussions. And also based on some of the particular interest in veterans issues, we'll make sure that one of the discussions in the series does focus specifically on veterans issues. So thank you all so much for joining us today. We will be releasing the audio in the future and encourage you to share that widely and tune in for the next event in the series. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.